The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn with me in your New Testaments to Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, we'll be there for a little while this morning, Second Peter chapter 1. It's wonderful to be with all of you here this morning. Um, Zoe and I missed you last week. Uh, we, of course, as was announced, um, had a little bit of an ordeal with Collins. It was a scare for us new parents, uh, but Collins is okay, and, and she's doing well, not in any pain at all, though I think she's more uh, in discomfort from, from gassiness than anything, and so that's probably why she's a little fussy. Um, but we thank you so much for your thoughts and your prayers for those who have reached out to us in, in that time. Um, and we certainly thank you so much for that, and I appreciate um, the continued prayers for my dad and, and pray that that would continue as well. It's wonderful to see some who are visiting with us this morning. We want you to know you're our honored guest, and we'd love to see you back at any other opportunity. If you have any questions or thoughts or um, desires to study with us uh, after, please let us know about that. We'd love to, to be of service to you in that regard. In Second Peter chapter 3, in verse 18, the apostle said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We began this study a couple of weeks ago where we look at the concept of growing in grace, and it's very much associated with growing in knowledge. But as we studied last week, or two weeks ago rather, um, stressing the concept of growing in grace, at least in my mind, brings a different facet to it and a sense of value that I think might be missing if we don't think about that concept of growing in grace. And it takes away this concept of a grudging obligation in our studies and in our application of our studies and being with God's people and worshiping God. It, it takes away any, any kind of um, angst about that and it brings in this graciousness and thanksgiving on our part to God that we get to participate in those things. The fact that by that we're growing in the grace of God as we often describe it as unmerited favor. In the first chapter of Second Peter, in verse 2, Peter said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord. And so not only are we commanded to grow in grace, but it's God that is seeking to multiply grace to us. And the way that that is done, as we studied, is in the knowledge of Jesus. And that ultimate concept of growing in grace, the goal, what God is trying to give to us, is the ability and privilege to be partakers of the divine nature, verse 4, having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. And so having fellowship with God, we don't become God, we don't become the divine nature, but we share in the divine nature with Him. And we do that ultimately through acting as God acts or letting Christ live in us, which is why this grace is multiplied in the knowledge of Christ. In the knowledge of Christ, as verse 3 indicates, the power of God that is in the gospel, Romans 1.16, gives us all things pertaining to life, the spiritual life in Christ, and godliness, that is, Godward piety as we live for Him. And we noted that that knowledge is the Greek word epinosis, not gnosis. And essentially what epinosis is, is it is a strengthened concept of knowledge, and it's strengthened in regard to its concept of participation in that thing which we know. Which is why in verse 5 he says, For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, 
to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or epinosis. In other words, you come to know about Christ. You see His glory. You see His virtue. You see the example of His life. And you know that He calls us not just by that, but to that, to the participation in such. And so while this list of virtues in verses 5 through 7 are not necessarily comprehensive of the Christian existence, they certainly do a pretty good job of mapping it out. And the end result is being people of love. And we know that God is love, so we are ultimately sharing in the divine nature. And we gave an introduction to that in two parts a couple of weeks ago. I would encourage you to look back at that if you haven't listened to it so that we can be ready to go with regard to these individual studies of what we might call the graces that are enumerated by the Holy Spirit. The first, he says, as we give all diligence, is to add to our faith virtue. Virtue is the Greek word arte, and it is a word which in this context have brought a couple of different viewpoints by various commentators and various individuals who have studied this particular text. I want us to first look at the lexicographers in regard to their definition of the Greek word arte. Vine says that arte properly denotes whatever procures preeminent estimation for a person or thing, hence intrinsic eminence, moral goodness, virtue. Arden Gingrich says, likewise, uncommon character worthy of praise Excellence of character, exceptional civic virtue. We used that definition in our first couple of lessons as we looked at virtue in verse um, verse 3, the virtue of Christ. Thayer says this, a virtuous course of thought, feeling, and action. Virtue, moral goodness. In a second entry, any particular moral excellence as modesty and purity. And so modesty and purity are not virtue, but they are used as examples of virtue. And so modesty and purity are, are two of many virtues, if you will, those things which are morally excellent. And then Strong gives this definition a little different. He says, properly, it is manliness or valor, that is, excellence, intrinsic or attributed. Consider some comments from Arton Gingrich. He, remember, gave the definition of ultimately moral excellence, excellence of character. But he noted that in Homer, it primarily was of military valor or exploits, also of distinction for other personal qualities and associated performance that enhanced the common interest. So a lot of times in the Greek, arte was used in reference to courage and valor, manliness. And so you think of a warrior that is not shaken to go to the front lines, but is willing and able in his bravery to fight that fight and experience that battle. It's helpful also, though, to consider some of the comments from various scholars. Albert Barnes says this, and this is the the lengthiest quote, and the others are shorter. Albert Barnes says that all the things which the apostle specifies, going on from verses 5 through 7, all of those things in the list, unless knowledge be an exception, are virtues in the sense in which that word is commonly used, moral excellencies. And it can hardly be supposed that the apostle here meant to use a general term which would include all the others, The probability is, therefore, Albert Barnes says, that by the word here, he has reference to the common meaning of the Greek word as referring to manliness, courage, vigor, energy, 
And the sense is that he wished them to evince whatever firmness or courage might be necessary in maintaining the principles of their religion and in enduring the trials to which their faith might be subjected. Similarly, Clark says courage or fortitude is what is meant by Arte to enable you to profess the faith before men in these times of persecution. Henry takes the same position. By virtue, here we may understand strength and courage without which the believer cannot stand up for good works by abounding and excelling in them. And then James Fawcett and Brown take that position as well. Moral excellency, but he specifies manly, strenuous energy answering to the virtue, energetic excellency of God. But pulpit commentary says it is Christian manliness and active courage in the good fight of faith. But Oberst says this. This is interesting. The problem of pinning down which trait is most in the mind of the apostle is not easily settled. I don't think anyone would suggest it's easily settled. He says, all in all, the translation of virtue or moral excellence is probably to be preferred with the awareness that is it is an active um, and not a passive quality. So he suggests it's just moral excellency, not necessarily manliness or courage. With those things in mind, some saying that it's just this moral excellency. So that would include not just this first of virtue, but also knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love, and what was even mentioned earlier, um, modesty and purity by Thayer, anything that is of moral excellence. And then the other side, suggesting that it simply means manliness and courage and valor. I want us to consider what the Scripture says concerning this word, how it uses arte. It appears five times in the New Testament. What we'll look at first is from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. This is a familiar verse to us where the Apostle Paul encourages, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, he says, if there is any virtue, arte, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And so those matters of truth and nobility of justice, of purity, of loveliness, and of good report. They are summed up under the heading of virtue and under the heading of being praiseworthy. It seems that the way Paul uses it here in Philippians 4 and verse 8 is anything that is of preeminent and moral excellence. It could be any of those things in the list. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, we see Arte used by the Apostle Peter in his first epistle. He says, "...you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood." a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises, that's arte, praises, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The idea of arte being translated into praises is things which God possesses that are praiseworthy. And so the ASV, American Standard Version, New American Standard Version, and the English Standard Version all translate that excellency. You may proclaim the excellencies of God. Why is God worthy of praise? We proclaim those things to others and in the world. And so it has to do with moral excellence. And then in Second Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, in our context, it says that His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, that is Christ, who called us by glory and virtue. In our previous study, we indicated that His glory is the glory of of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. And His virtue is how that's manifested in His life, in His character. His sinlessness, ultimately, is the very concept of whole and entire moral excellence. 
And so there it means moral excellence as it did in the other three entries. And the only other two times it's mentioned is there in verse 5. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue again knowledge. And so I think that with regard to that, it would be logical to reason that the general concept of simple moral excellency cannot necessarily be excluded just on the face of the fact that all of these could be listed as specific virtues. Because every time you see it in the New Testament, five times it's not used as courage or manliness or valor, but as it pertains to moral excellence. And consider the very context. In verse 5, he says, For this very reason, giving diligence out of your faith virtue. And so the reason you add to your faith virtue and knowledge and all of these kinds of things is for the reasons stated before, the reasons as we enumerated earlier. Grace is to be multiplied to you. God is trying to multiply grace to us, allow us to grow in grace, chapter 3 and verse 18. That's through the knowledge of Christ. In the knowledge of Christ, we have all things that pertain to the life in Christ and godliness in Christ as he has called us in that knowledge in the gospel by his glory and virtue. So his glory, his virtue, his perfect life has attracted us to his doctrine, to his teaching, his sacrifice, which is an aspect of moral excellence and self-sacrifice and selflessness attracts us to him. But also we noted in our first study, the ESV renders it this way. He called us to his own glory and virtue. And so it's not just a call by it, but it's a call to it. That's the very context. It's a call to participate in the glory and virtue of God. As he says in verse 4, by which the glory and virtue with which he called us and to which he called us, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. And we know the content of the promises to a degree by what the promises fulfill and lead us to that through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. And so with that, I would suggest that you grow in grace by participating in the divine nature, which would suggest that as our diligence must be supplied, lest we forget that we've been cleansed of our old sins, as verse 9 indicates, and lest we're short-sighted and do not seek the entrance into the eternal abode of God, that it has reference in part to a goal of growing to be like Christ. Add to your faith virtue in the sense of this moral excellency of Christ of verse 3 to which you are called to partake in the divine nature and you're not just settled with your faith. That's not enough for you. But you realize you are cleansed from your old sins so that you can become more like Christ. So there is the goal of moral excellency. And the way you're going to reach that goal and achieve that goal is to be adding these specific things, but you got to have that goal. You see, too often there are those who obey the gospel, their sins are cleansed, and they've been given a fresh start, and they think that's it. And that's primarily what our discussion was two weeks ago in our introductory portion. They think of grace as simply being able to continue in sin and being forgiven of the consequences. So you can keep sinning, but you don't have to go through the consequences, which is ultimately spiritual death. When in reality, God gives us grace, not just to save us from death, but to save us from sin in general. And if that is understood, then we're going to be growing apart from the world and closer to God as we're more and more like Him. But in order for that to happen, you've got to have that as a goal. You've got to have a proper understanding of the call to Christ. Is a call to be like Christ, not just a call to God's grace and the forgiveness of sins. 
A man by the name of Melvin Elliott in his work, The Language of the King James Bible, defines arte as this, moral rectitude, uprightness of character, considered as being a manifestation of manly vigor. And so where he looks at arte as having the foundation of courage and manly vigor, he notes that that courage and manly vigor is manifested in the appropriation of these characteristics and becoming more and more like Christ. In other words, what Christ has called us to and growing and growing as Christians, becoming more and more like he is and the pattern he set for us, that takes courage. So I'm going to take a middle position on this and suggest that we don't have to take one or the other, but what about both? And I think it's very possible that he could have had reference to both. You need to have the goal of becoming like God. That's what you're called to for this very reason, to be partakers in the divine nature out to your faith. But if you're going to have that goal, you're also going to have to supply yourself with courage as you seek to live for Christ in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So consider that as we're to add to our faith virtue, what we're to add is the goal of partaking in the moral excellency or virtue of Christ. In other words, my goal is not to be better than those who were before me. And that's what my dad says. Every parent's goal is, is for their children to be better than they were. And then their children, their goal is for them to be better than they were before. And that's a noble goal. But our goal is not simply to be better than what our parents were, or better than whoever brought us to Christ, or better than the next person. But our goal is to be Christ, be like Christ. And we got to add to our faith that goal so that we're not sitting as stagnant individuals, but we're advancing onward because we know we're not called to mediocrity. As Christians, we're called to the excellency of Christ. This is what Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1 when he said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So Paul wasn't even saying, I'm the standard. He qualified that, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, if I stop imitating Christ, which was very possible for Paul to do, he wasn't perfect and completely without the temptation that came upon him. And just like Peter fell short in Galatians 2, Paul could have very well fell short. He qualifies it just as I imitate Christ. Likewise, in Ephesians 5 and verse 1, Paul writes again, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. He's the ultimate standard. We need to have the goal to become like him. You know, it's interesting that this is in the very concept of our discipleship and the title we've been given as disciples of Christ. The word disciple is the Greek word mathetes. And Arden Gingers defined it as this, one who is rather constantly associated with someone who has a pedagogical reputation, a, a teaching reputation. In other words, a pupil to a teacher. But notice he also says, or a particular set of views, a disciple, an adherent. And so a disciple is not simply one who learns from another. A disciple is one who adheres to another. He imitates that other person. That's the very concept of discipleship. People talk about discipleship and they call themselves disciples of Christ and they're not even trying to live like Christ. They're not trying to imitate Christ. They only got part of the equation. They'll talk about learning and studying the scriptures, but then they'll qualify that with this excuse, if you will, that the reason why it's not a big deal for me to sin or not to change is because while I'm learning about these things, God never expects me to actually do them. And they might say, at least not perfectly, but all that is is a cop-out because we are to strive to be like Christ, and He was perfect. That's what discipleship is. And in Acts 11 and verse 26, it says, In Antioch, disciples were first called Christians. 
Christian is the specific. Anybody can be a disciple, and they may be a disciple of Christ, they may be a disciple of Buddha, they may be a disciple of Muhammad, whoever it may be. Disciple does not tell us enough. But disciples of Christ are called Christians. And this is what Vine defines that word as. The Greek Christiana, Christianos, Christian is a word formed after the Roman style signifying an adherent of Jesus. So we are adherents of our teacher. Our teacher is Jesus. We are adherents of Jesus. We're Christians. And to wear the name Christian and not try to act like Christ and strive for that ultimate transcendent goal is to fall short of what we're called to. And so we add to our faith that brought us into the good grace of God in the gospel this goal of being like Christ, because that's what we're called to. We weren't saved from our sins just to return. We were saved from our sins to be completely and totally different. I think this is manifested in Acts 4 and verse 13 when Peter and John refused to quit speaking in the name of Jesus. They were threatened after they had healed that lame man in the Sanhedrin. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men and they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's what discipleship of Christ is and that's what being a Christian is where people can see that you've been with Jesus. You've learned from Him. You've seen how He acted, so you're trying to imitate Him. And so when they see the disciples, as frustrated as they were about this man Jesus, and as much as they tried to get rid of Him, and finally they think they've gotten rid of Him, now they see Him again, but in the form of His disciples, and Peter and John. We need to have that goal. This is expressed, I think, very clearly in the epistle of First John. In First John chapter 1 and verse 7, John encourages those individuals to walk in the light as he is in the light and therefore we'll have fellowship with one another and ultimately our fellowship was with God. This is an exclusive and absolute concept as he defined who God was in verse 5 that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The true concept of light is total absence of darkness. When he says walk in the light as he is in the light he means don't sin at all. And that's what he says in chapter 2 and verse 1. These things I've written to you that you may not sin. And he's not suggesting that if you sin, it's all over with. That's the whole point he makes in this chapter, that you still have the propitiation for sins. But that's not an excuse to continue in sin. These things I've written that you may not sin. In chapter 3 and verse 6 of 1 John, he says, Whoever abides in him, Christ, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, that is the word of God, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. There in chapter 2, again in verse 6, this is how discipleship looks. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Not, it would have been enough for him to say he ought to walk as he walked, but he said he ought to walk just as he walked. In chapter 2 and verse 15, this is seen in the negative of our abstinence as Christians. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if you love the world, it's not possible to love God. That's friendship with the world and that's bringing you an enmity between God, James 4. In chapter 3 and verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him to be as he is, as we studied a couple of weeks ago, purifies himself as he is pure. It means loving as he loved. Verse 16 of chapter 3 in 1 John. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? We don't just live as he lived in purity, but we love as he loved. And then in chapter 3 and verse 18, we walk the walk and talk the talk. 
My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's what we're called to. So we need to have that as our goal. We're not seeking mediocrity, but we're seeking the excellency of Christ to which we've been called. And this is what it looks like as Paul shows in Galatians 2 and verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 13 through 14 or 16 when we know that Jesus calls those people that are His disciples and if they gain entrance into the kingdom, they are the salt of the earth and they are the light of the world so that people see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We live as Christ lives so that when we come before others, they don't see us, they see Christ. So we need to have that goal of moral excellency. We'll never ever grow in knowledge if we don't have the goal to be like Christ, because we're not going to be looking for the information about who Christ was and who Christ is. We're not going to grow in all of these specific virtues if we don't have the goal. But with that goal, we need courage. We need manliness. We need valor. We need to put on a strong and brave face to go into the world and live as Christ lived. We know He needed it. We certainly know He needed it. I think we can understand this by seeing some implications of following Jesus, of of being disciples or Christians, adherents of Jesus. And we can see that by seeing how he lived and the implications that came with that in his life. We're going to be different than the world. Remember in Mark chapter 2, after he called Matthew, Levi, to him, who was a tax collector. And as he sat, he was dining in Levi's house and many tax collectors and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees saw this and they said, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now what this doesn't mean is that Jesus was having fellowship with sinners. But this is what Jesus' response was in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we don't just pursue for God's sake those who look like they're good prospects, but we pursue everyone. And that's going to look different. Why is that man who's a Christian associating with those people? Well, it's calling them to repentance. Jesus also didn't conform to human traditions as we see in Matthew chapter 15. They question him. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat bread. And that was not normal. But Christians are not going to be those who are necessarily conforming to every single human tradition. They may, if it's not sinful and it's something that is expedient. They may not. And people may see that as being very different. We're going to be different uh, to the world as we don't do what feels good, but we do what's right. Galatians 5 shows a tug of war in our Christian existence when he says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another that you do not do the things that you wish. And in fact, the audience of Peter's first epistle We're encouraged to stop living like the Gentiles because you've spent enough of your past lifetime in doing that and walking in these various sins. And in verse 4, he says, In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. They speak evil of you. They think it's strange how different you are in not walking according to lust. So we need to have courage if we're to live that kind of life. We need to have courage because as Jesus was challenged, we will be challenged. In Matthew 21, 23, the Pharisees question his authority. With what authority do you do these things? You cast out this demon. What authority did you do that by? 
or you teach this doctrine? What authority do you do that by? In Matthew 22, we remember he was questioned about taxes given to Caesar. He was questioned by the Sadducees about the resurrection. And he was questioned about uh, the law in which is the greatest commandment by a scribe. And he had to have the courage to tell them what was truth, as we do. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, we're to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That takes courage to stand up for the truth. And when we're challenged, as we know we're on God's side, to know that He is with us, He stands with us. And so we don't shrink in the face of adversity. And we're also going to be targeted, so we need to have courage. Jesus was targeted many times in His life, from the very early part of His ministry, obviously, to the end. In Luke 6, in verse 11, it says that they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In chapter 19 of Luke, in verse 47, as He was teaching in the temple, they sought how they ought to destroy Him. And in verse 2 of chapter 22 of Luke, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill Him. Also in John chapter 5, in verse 16, they... They sought to persecute Jesus and sought to kill him because he did things on the Sabbath. And in chapter 11 and verse 53, after the resurrection of Lazarus, which no one could dispute at all, from that day on they plotted to put him to death. And it worked. They crucified the Son of God. Not even he was exempt from that fate. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, we're promised that we will be targeted as well. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution persecution. We need to have the courage to put on Christ if we're to endure that. And then lastly, and involved in all of this is we'll be hated as he was hated. In John 15 and verse 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Of course, that was to the chosen apostles, but it certainly is applicable to us. They hated our master that we are adhering to in his entire teaching in life. And so why wouldn't they hate us? And we need to have courage to face that. In John chapter 3 and verse 20, it says that everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And in Ephesians 5 and verse 8, we're called children of light. So the world hates the light and we're the children of light. Just like they hated the light that came into the world who is the word of God in John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5, they're going to hate us. And so Christianity is not sunshine and daisies. Christianity is a trial and Christianity requires a goal to be what we're called to be, but it's not for the faint of heart. And so Christianity requires great courage. We need courage to reach heaven. We need courage to grow and be more and more like Christ as we grow in grace. In Joshua chapter 1, I think we're familiar with the great trial and test of Joshua after the death of Moses. Moses is the greatest leader in Israelite history, if you will. Certainly David is a great leader in Israelite history, and this is exclusive of Jesus, who is obviously is the Son of God and Messiah, the leader, the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2 and verse 10. But, but Moses was transcendent in the Jewish faith. In Hebrews chapter 3, the Hebrew writer had to convince the, the readers of his epistle that Jesus was even greater than Moses because of 
what great position he held within that faith. And Moses has died. He can't enter the promised land because he struck the rock when God said to speak to it. And so he died on the other side of the river as consequences to his sin. And Joshua is to take up that mantle of leadership going into the Canaan land, fighting all of these strong armies and and advancing on all of these fortresses in that foreign land to subdue it and realize the promises of God and be a leader of the people. And so it's no wonder that God gave him these words. In Joshua 1 and verse 6, he says this, Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law, he says, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And if it not, if two times wasn't enough for a third time, he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice how he joins together strength and courage. Be strong, be courageous. And we might think that they're synonyms, but they're not. They are very intimately related. But he's saying, be strong. Don't let this word of the Lord depart from your mouth. Be true to it. Speak it. But also don't let it depart from your mouth is a a phrase which indicates your adherence to it. You are going to trust in God by keeping his word. You're about to go into a land of idolatry with an obvious rebellious people. You need to stay strong in the Lord, strong in his word. But that requires courage. And courage is a part of strength and a manifestation of strength, but They are certainly two different things that need to come together. Be strong, but you can't be strong without being courageous. You can't be courageous without being strong. Be strong and courageous. If you are to do what the Lord has called you to, you must have courage. And it's the same thing with us. Reminds you of Strong's definition of arte. It is properly manliness, valor, that is excellence, intrinsic or attributed. And so we need to have virtue in that sense as well. Add to your faith the bravery and courage to grow and to do the Lord's will. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13, the apostle says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. The New American Standard Bible renders it this way, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. We know that obviously women can be strong, but or be brave, but it's generally associated with a manly characteristic. Men go to battle. They need to be courageous. They need to be brave. We tell, you know, you know, people tell their sons all the time, act like a man, even if they're a boy. They're trying to, to instill in them this bravery and courage. Don't, don't be so down on yourself. Don't, don't be such a wimp, maybe. Be, be, be like a man. And he's telling not just men to do this, but Christians in general. Women need to be like men in this regard. Because really we're all heirs together the grace of life and our soul has no gender. We need to be manly as Christians. We need to act brave. This is what Paul encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. He said, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And that has to do with his preaching of the gospel. Don't let that go to waste. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He didn't give us a spirit of fear. We have the power of the gospel with us. 
We have the love of God with us and we have this sound mind. We, we understand what reality actually is. And so we know all of this trouble that might strike fear in us is nothing to actually fear because it's temporal. And so he's given us power, love and a sound mind. Therefore, he applies it. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. You can't do that, Timothy, without courage. The psalmist shows it in this manner in Psalm 27 and verse 11. When he asked God to teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies, do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. In every psalm, we need to remember While context is key, and if it references a specific time in the psalmist's life, we need to investigate and study that to find out exactly what the psalmist is indicating. Regardless of what physical event it had to do in Israelite history, it always has a spiritual connotation to it as well. All of these small skirmishes, if you will, all of these small problems in the grand scheme of things, these physical battles and internal turmoils for for the specific individual writing that psalm by inspiration of the Spirit, it all points to the greater transcendent warfare and conflict that we are involved with, with each other, but certainly and more importantly, internally individual as individuals. And so think of this psalm in that regard as we should in Psalm 27, 11, I, I want you to lead me in the smooth path. There's an enemy. Our enemy is Satan, and he wants deliverance from his enemy, Satan. And he's got Satan trying to accuse him before God. He's a bearing false witness, and he's breathing out violence. And there's no way he could have been the child of God that he's called to be in all of this spiritual conflict unless he thought he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He would see the goal, so therefore wait on God. It's not coming right now, but it's coming, and you have that confidence, so wait on Him. And while you wait on Him, be of good courage, and He'll strengthen you. Wait on the Lord by doing His will. And going back to Second Peter, we understand, especially in this context, this call to add to their faith valor, or courage, or bravery, or manliness, because the very epistle is about false teachers in their midst and the great spiritual damage they're going to cause if these people don't stand up against them, if they don't realize their error and therefore resist their error and combat that error with the truth. Much like Jude said in Jude verse 3, contend for the faith. In Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 through 3, he speaks about false prophets before and therefore false teachers among them. And the Lord is going to bring on them destruction. So don't follow them, lest you be destroyed with them. God is able to keep you, chapter 2, it says, and protect you for that great day. But that would require courage. It takes courage to stand up for truth in the face of error. If we're going to grow in Christ, if we're going to become more and more like Christ, we need to actually have that as our goal. And this requires honesty for each of us individually. Is my goal truly to be Christ-like? Not to be kind of, sort of, like Christ, but to walk just as He walked, to to be as He is, as I'm called to share in, participate in, be a partaker of 
the glory and virtue or the divine nature? Is that really my goal? And is my life reflecting that? And if that is the case, then we need to do what Peter said to do and add to our faith this virtue which has a connotation of manliness, of bravery, and of valor. So we don't faint in the day of adversity. We don't shrink in the times of pressure, but we do what the will of the Lord is always. If you're here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel, we invite you to do that. Jesus tells us very clearly that unless we are baptized into His body, we have no hope of salvation. It is in the body of Christ where salvation is found and the Lord adds to the church those who are saved. And so if you would like to take that step this morning, we could assist you in that if you would like to do that. And if you have taken that step and you've fallen short in some sense or fashion and need to make those things known, or perhaps you are just struggling and need prayers of the congregation, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that was selected.